yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time imon irok the yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochrecha nach vetoch ara igornamyan on kestchen ekol. Vien talam aginam griv arkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler. We're going to talk about a digital age of consent. We're going to talk about Twitter, Facebook, Airbnb being banned in, ban- in Amsterdam. We're going to talk about all sorts of other stuff. Um, but first, listen to this. Laurel. 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 Okay, be honest. What do you hear there? Do you hear the word Yanni or the word y- Laurel? Now, I'm going to say that... When I first heard this on Tuesday, all I could hear was Yanni. I couldn't hear anything else. Now, all I can literally hear is the word Laurel. Listen again. Laurel. 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 Am I going crazy? I'm joined by two people here. Roisin Kybert, who's a freelance journalist. He's been in with us before. She's, as I've said before, one of the best writers around. She writes for Motherboard, Vice UK, The Guardian, The Irish Independent, many others. And Steve Dempsey, who's the head of product at INM and a columnist for the Sunny Independent. Yanni or Laurel? Laurel. That's Laurel. what I heard. That's what I heard. All Laurel. I heard was Yanni. <laughs> yeah. And then at some point, I started to hear the at the beginning and I worked my way back from and then I can't hear Yanni at all anymore like not at all I'm trying so hard to hear Yanni but there is no way that I can hear it hang on here we go again Laurel Laurel Steve I'm just Laurel it's like one of those 3D puzzle things used to stare at for ages and then a giraffe would emerge but you know uh, Gav here the studio engineer he says all he can hear is the word Yanni and so does Donal uh, uh, inside. He says all he can hear is Yanni. And that was me. That was me literally up until 18 hours ago. All I could hear was Yanni. Now uh, now, now it's just Laurel. Anyway, forget about that. Um, let's move on to some um, some other interesting things. The, here's, a, here's a clip. Google is entering the artificial intelligence uh, race in a very big way, and particularly with their voice uh, services. Uh, and here's what they released uh, last week. This is a phone call that they set up between uh, Duplex, which is a new voice uh, artificial intelligence system they have, ringing up a hair salon appointment. Oh, how can I help you? Hi, I'm calling to book a women's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. 
Sure. Give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure. What time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. Okay, if you didn't know, the, the person who is making that call is the robot, is the artificial intelligence uh, algorithm. And notice all of the, um, mm, yeah, I guess uh, I'm looking for 10 o'clock. All that sort of stuff. Now, is this is this? Um, do we think this is a breakthrough, or do or is this creepy? It's certainly creepy due to the verisimilitude and the fact that it sounds so like a real human person. Yeah. On one level, it's incredibly impressive, and there was a lot of whooping and hollering when they announced this. Yeah. But on another level, it's just so banal as well. It's making a phone call. I mean, it's something that. What I don't understand fully about Google's entrance into AI, as you're putting it, is that they seem to be going for all these low-rent tasks. They'll help you like finish your sentences and emails. They'll make mm. phone calls for you. Surely artificial intelligence should be able to do something a bit more useful for us. Yeah, yeah. but isn't that like 20 years off or something? What do you think? Well, uh, it, it strikes me as interesting that, yeah, it's they're putting it to the purpose of being a bridge between old technologies and new technologies. Like, surely Google in a minute could put together some sort of system that all, you know, uh, hair salons around the world could instantly have really efficient online booking that would take far less time than briefing this machine to do your bidding for you. But like no one can get over the novelty of having a robot valet who will assist you in your life like this in this utterly impractical, sinister, oddly motivated way. It, to me, it's all flash. It's just them like trying to get a rise out of a crowd at a conference. Do you think so? Do you think, do you yeah. think that, they're, that those motivations are play here? Yeah, Yeah, definitely, because it's not more efficient. Mm. It's that typical kind of sideways thinking of like the same kind of thinking which informs things like Soylent, you know, like food is inefficient, so I'll eat mulch, <laughs> you know, um, except that I'll yeah. like devote a lot of time into sourcing this mulch and like mm. rehydrating it every morning and actually it won't be that efficient when like all of my organs start to shut down from malnutrition, you know, like it's that <laughs> Same strange, all flash, in, inefficient. So I logic. presume the goal here is if you want a hair appointment, that instead of having to call up your booking form, that you literally just say to your one custodian Google assistant, you just say, um, I want a hair appointment next Wednesday at four o'clock. And it literally takes it all from there and then and comes back to And it does it in your, the background. And, and you never have to worry background. about it. And yeah. I think the way they introduced it, like Roshim was saying, was that a lot of a lot of businesses don't have any online booking forms. Mm. Um, so here's the way around it. People still use the telephone. So let's create some sort of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. that can operate over the telephone. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of tend to agree. Surely it would be easier to give everyone a Google-powered free tool like we mm. all use with Gmail or something for businesses to allow them to make appointments. They also said it would allow them to update the, like if you're Googling a business, it's opening hours. So they may use this AI to make constant phone calls to check mm -hmm. in and make sure they have uh, updated information gleaned over the phone by their AI that can then be returned in search results, which makes sense because that allows mm. them to do things at scale uh, using kind of more human interfaces that they can't do. So I think, I, I don't know about the, the, the kind of showing off the tech bros, that that's mm. definitely a, a, at play, but I think there's probably better uses in-house for Google for this sort of thing than there are for you and I who might want to book hair well, appointments yeah. or dentist appointments. Here's another example of Duplex uh, calling a restaurant 
you. How may I help you? Hi. Um, I'd like to reserve a table for Wednesday the 7th. For seven people? Um, it's for four people. Four people? When? Um, Today? Next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Oh, actually, we leave here for like upper like five people. For few, four people, you can come. How long is the wait usually to uh, be seated? For when tomorrow or weekday or? For next Wednesday, uh, the seventh. Oh no, it's not too busy. You you, you can come for four people, okay? Oh, I gotcha. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. I mean, that little oh, I gotcha at the end. <laughs> yeah, you know. it's so sinister. <laughs> Google has definitely got us all. <laughs> you know, and and I suppose, because there's there, a lot of discussion of ethics after this uh, came out in so far as when do you have a right as somebody working in service in a restaurant or in a hairdresser, for example, to know that a computer is calling up or you're talking to a computer? And would that affect the way that you... Um, is that just a, a you know an antiquated notion that you should know when you're talking to a computer? Like, is it going to affect the service, or you know, or should you have should you have that right? And it's clearly recording the conversation as well, because it's, mm. if it's an AI, it's going to have to learn from everything it does, and that's how it kind of mm. keeps going. But I don't know. Like, I was reading about even the laws around that, around recording conversations in Ireland, and it's you can record, but you have to be party to the conversation. But how do you interpret that when it's between a person and unknowingly mm. a machine? You know, there's a sort of a hierarchy of knowledge here that ultimately goes all the way back to the people who own the company mm -hmm. who have no personal investment in that conversation whatsoever except for just gleaning data from it yeah yeah and make us uh, make us dependent uh, on it but um like i i think that for in though both those cases the restaurant owner and the hairdressing uh, salon owner i think they'd probably still take the booking yeah, I mean, it serves their business. It serves their business. Yeah. But it was pitched quite nicely by Google. I'm, I'm making a, an appointment for a client. The, mm. the hairdresser once said, which is like, the, we would be clients of this mm. Google AI mm. service if that's what you're mm. using. I do think people have a right to know that they're yeah, talking. I think it wouldn't change what they're doing. Yeah. I, but I think there are legal implications, like Roisin just said. And actually, if there was, say, an audio mnemonic or a little kind of tone at the start to let mm. whoever was receiving the call know that this is not or a real just person. Don't, just don't use the upspeak. Recorded. Like why? Why oh, did why do the they have to go? Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and like you know, it's a computer. They don't have to. It, that is clearly put in to really kind of to fool the other person into yeah. thinking or into reacting like they're talking to a human, right? When I heard the first one, it gave me so many thoughts. I, I initially thought that there was just a female voice and I was like, this is so sexist. Like, uh -huh. they've dumbed down this AI and they've made her into, like, to, to me it reflects, it's really funny because it kind of reflects fear of what technology and entertainment and mediation were all doing to speech that, you know, you had these sort of moral panics over in up, up speak mm. and valley girl english and mm. the teenagers were doing that and i think there has yet to be kind of that was in the 90s i think and earlier and now you have this sort of widespread acceptance slash resentment among older people of younger people's americanized accents yeah. and the sort of twang and the up speak again and mm. it's so funny that this voice that would be the sort of child of the tech era completely doesn't quite personify but definitely exemplifies yeah. that manner of speech mm -hmm. and, and it's been deemed by google as unthreatening mm. i suspect 
my parents would think otherwise. They, they'd hate that kind of voice. Well, it's, it's almost the equivalent in some ways of presenting a robot that has kind of, you know, big eyes or is like, yeah, a, yeah. you know, or, or, or is a handsome human in some way, a male or a female robot to try and elicit a different type of response from the human that it is uh, interacting with. Um, maybe in time it's inevitable. Maybe, maybe that in time to, I'm thinking of situations like in healthcare, or whatever, because I've been researching a lot into artificial intelligence and robots recently. And one of the biggest commercial markets is is healthcare, and particularly for assisted living for older people. And there probably does come a point in when a person reaches a certain age. I'm thinking of very elderly people, where it may just help the process if the robot or the AI looks and sounds a little bit more familiar than. Um, than, you know, a stone-cold robot. I don't know. Perhaps. I mean, it's getting into the area of the whole thing, kind mm-hmm. of almost like Blade Runner over mm. the telephone. Uh, or in Westworld. Same, yeah, Westworld. Or I'm thinking um, Aliens with Sigourney Weaver where she hates the, oh, the guy yes, who's the kind right, of robot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think th- there's such an r- interesting thing around all use cases for how we respond to these people who aren't quite mm. people but who are being passed off as people. It's in, uh, yeah, actually, in some uses, it yeah. will be useful to actually have it. Um, the whole question of empathy or rights that robots or AI uh, may have is kind of interesting. It's not, it's not a real thing yet, but I remember the European Parliament two or three years ago actually debated a motion on to what degree uh, robot workers should attract um, some semblance of human rights at yeah, work. I remember that yeah. being a like, legitimate d- debate. Yeah. And actually, I think this is sort of the, the old point that gets made in every kind of crap sci-fi film, I suppose, but it does reveal something about communication between humans because um, one of the ways that you can break an AI seemingly, I don't know, I was reading this piece in Motherboard about this, that the, one of the ways you can break that and be instantly transferred to a real human is to start small talk with the machine. But mm. what humanity is there in small talk? We do it out of a sense of obligation. We don't do it out of empathy or kindness. We do mm. it um, mutually kind of out of awkwardness. To pass time or to, yeah. And yet that makes us human, but there's no real emotion in it while uh, the robot expects us to cut straight to the point. Yeah. Um, yeah, in a sense, it kind of reveals how, how functional and mm. spare and kind of passionless so many of the interactions we have day to day are, you know. Mm. That's um, the interesting thing, though. It seems that Google is making what's passionless even more passionless. Like yeah. if they're helping you autocomplete your emails, which is another use for the AI mm-hmm. they unveiled last week. It seems like they're kind of saying, OK, all these little touch points that humans have with each other. Let's take them away. So what, yeah. what ultimately what happens if you're, you're left holding like an Android phone and it's doing everything for you and you never have to interface or anything? I think it's going back to a very strange kind of Silicon Valley tech bro idea of mm. what, what are the things that these like highly paid engineers who are probably quite shy and retiring, what do they dislike doing? Mm. Making phone calls, yeah. writing troublesome emails Looking to people. Looking people in the eye. Communicating, <laughs> making small talk. Like these are the things, like you said, that do make us human. So you, Google seems to be solving a, a set of problems that exist for a particular set of people in a particular yeah. part of America. I find it really funny as well. I'm just thinking years and years ago, I remember reading about how people interact over email um, in Westminster in the parliament. And it seemingly there's this whole kind of structure of how to insult someone is that you, you pass it one tier lower to re- reply. So someone like emails you and you're, you know, a minister or something, um, you get someone below you to reply to them to imply that you don't have the time. And then if they they want to like 
basically shade you back they'll get someone even lower than the person you got and like it becomes this kind of race to the bottom of like who will get the intern to reply you know uh, yeah. so how insulting is it to get your AI to yeah, speak to like point. oh it's fine I won't call my my mother yeah. <laughs> the AI <laughs> will call my mother yeah, instead or my granny I mean that's like and the assisted living thing obviously it does play a role but it, it reminds me of like Paro the baby seal robot mm. that's given to like people with Alzheimer's yeah. um, but it's really essentially because no human will visit them isn't it you know it's know. the most tragic thing it is kind of depressing <laughs> yeah. um, do you know what would be even more if we're getting into Black Mirror here um, what would even be an, an, a more interesting scenario is if your granny turns around and one day uh, when you do go to visit and say actually I don't really want to spend time with you I actually find the robot more interesting yeah you know? <laughs> um, which could I suppose um, happen but uh, uh, yeah the, but the whole evolution this is kind of interesting personally um I think we are going to succumb to some degree uh, of what Google is doing here, if only because of our our human instincts. Um, like if you take the, do you remember those robot dogs that MIT had and you see them running around? And then there was one video where one of the engineers was kicking it over to show how stable it could be. And my first reaction is leave that dog alone. Leave that robot dog alone, <laughs> you know? I don't know. I was quite happy to... Uh... Did, yeah. did either of you see Isle of Dogs? The no, West not yet. It features a blatantly anti-Boston Dynamics plotline um, where real dogs fight robot dogs. Uh-huh. Yeah, very much on Team Doggo, uh, the real dogs. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've, I'm an avid uh, fan of Westworld, you know, which is on Sky Atlantic at the moment. Um, I, no spoilers, so I'm not going to go into to, to the plot. But um, the concept, yeah, of course, that, that was a 30 or 40-year-old show, I think, with Yule Brenner um, originally. But um, the concept behind that I find to be very, very plausible in a 30 to 40 year time frame. The idea of a theme park where essentially robots are there for you to do what you want with them to, you know, shoot them if that's what you would like to do to, or, or whatever else to, to save them, to be a hero or, or whatever. Um, although most experts, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Most experts say that, you know, the moment of intelligence is still actually a few like you know 10 20 years off we're we're, we're not actually getting um getting much closer and then others have said it's all very well to have um a californian accent making a, a hair salon appointment but it might be a little bit different in dublin although pretty much everybody understands that accent isn't that isn't that the issue actually i think that like the westward th- the westworld thing really gets at the heart of the the strangeness that i think a lot of people feel towards the google duplex thing mm. um Google would argue, I suspect, that they're only using it for the most transactional purposes, mm-hmm. like really simple functional purposes. While Westworld, it's more about like revealing really like human things right. that you can't actually show to other humans mm-hmm. to robots. So that's where it gets disturbing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or like when your granny prefers the company of a robot seal. Mm-hmm. But Google are just apparently making the world more efficient. Mm. So it's like we have to reassess where does humanity matter here. I can't believe I'm even saying that. It <laughs> sounds like some awful tone-deaf TED talk or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you heartless, heartless, heartless person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so do we think it's going to happen anyway? Do we think Do we think we're we going to see this in a couple of years' time? Is this going to be part of our lives? I think certain. A certain so? group of people will use it. Whether yeah. it becomes ad- adopted by all is a different well, thing. Well, if it's there, would you use it? Um... In, cer- in certain circumstances, I would try it. Yeah. Whether it turns into something you that would I'd use it. on a you long-term totally basis, I could see you. No, using not necessarily. I actually value human interaction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I kind of enjoy other people. Would you go to a robot hairdresser? Uh, I've had enough bad haircuts that uh. yeah, I'd certainly try a robot hairdresser too. But that's mostly my fault. 
Um, okay, um, let's look at a couple of other things uh, that have happened. There's something that happened very recently. Uh, we're not going to do too much detail, but it's worth marking is the digital age of consent. So um, this week, uh, the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, um, changed or introduced rather digital age of consent in Ireland at 16, which is higher than the um, the age of 13 that the government and most actually all child safety organizations uh, were in favor of. Um, I have my own thoughts about that. I think it's probably a step backwards in terms of protecting kids online um, because it means now that the tech companies get to treat all kids as if they're 16 and therefore they don't have any additional duty of care when, you know, in knowing that one of their users is 14 or 15. On the other side of the fence, people say, well, no, it's a good thing because it means that uh, kids officially now have to get their parent, their parents to consent. It means that tech companies uh, don't have the right to um, openly collect personal data and commercial data on uh, kids on, on under 16s. Any thoughts around the table? Well, I'm going to say the four letters that everyone hates most mm -hmm. probably in the world right now. Is it G, with a G? P, and yeah. R. So this is thanks to Article 8 of GDPR, which mm -hmm. specifies that you can't track or keep data on kids. Well, there has to be a digital age consent, and GDPR says it's anywhere between 13 and 16. Fine Gael initially said 13. Everyone else is saying 16. Um, from my mind, the, going into the, the, the kind of legislative side of things, there's three things that legislation needs to be able to do to be able to be workable. First is it needs to be politically palatable. And this is politically palatable. There are not enough people out there who would say they'd be have concerns over children being tracked online. Mm -hmm. It needs to be uh, enforceable, which is where this whole thing falls down. It yeah. needs to be technically correct. Now, it's technically correct if you assume that these are the strictures given down to us from mm -hmm. Europe. But the question goes down to enforceability. Mm -hmm. And if I think the problem here really is it's GDP and or it's the fact that the or at the end is a regulation. This is a regulation. One of the things that could have helped it was if it was a directive, which means it just it turns into law in all European countries immediately. Uh, with whatever, whether it's 13 or 16. So what we're happening, what's happening here is different European countries are going to have different legislation that has different ages in it. Mm. Ultimately, this is a global problem. But if there was a pan-European approach to it, it would be preferable. But I cannot see how this would be enforceable. There's a there's a similar legislation in America um, called the COPA Act, and yeah. they there's weird ways you have to get you have to get parental consent mm -hmm. for this sort of thing and I think parents have to either send in like a utility bill or a, that, a government ID. Which is nonsense, which is an absolute non-starter. I mean, I was talking to um, CyberSafe Ireland. I mean, all of the child protection uh, bodies essentially uh, came out in favour of the lower age because they said it's much more practical, um, it's much more workable and it means that kids don't end up lying to get online and then aren't as vulnerable and can't be preyed upon quite as easily um, as they might if at 16. But one of the points that uh, CyberSafe Ireland was making is they did a, um, a survey in primary schools, thousands of kids between the age of 8 and 13, which is below even the 13 age um, barrier. And what they found was that in the majority of them were on some sort of social media, but that their parents had helped them on. So it's not like you know, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids who are sneaking on online to social media, you know, without their parents' knowledge. Their parents absolutely know uh, that this is happening. And um, the fact that now those kids won't be protected as 13-year-olds, but will be assumed to be 16-year-olds, even with the connivance of their, of their parents, I don't, I just don't see how that's going to, that's going to protect them uh, any better. But some of the triumphalism around, around the, um, 
the campaigners who want it is just, uh, it's, I mean. Well, I think our political classes are occasionally given over to the cries of, will somebody please think of the children? But <laughs> there's a huge disconnect between that and parents, let's say, who might be buying their children smartphones or giving them access to screen time from whatever age yeah. onwards. So like, I think I think it's incumbent on, on all citizens, on mm. parents in particular, to actually understand what their rights are and where their what their privacy rights are and how their data is used. But it's a nightmare. It's a, it's a real pain to try and understand. There's a real convenience versus mm. kind of privacy issue at the heart of this for ourselves, for our children. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think this necessarily solves anything like you're saying. I do think it raises way more questions than it answers. Mm. Yeah, I wonder how any kind of child safety campaigner would say uh, if you told them, you know, shouldn't the child have a phone to walk around? Mm. It wouldn't it be insane not to let your child have a phone when every other child has a phone and mm -hmm. it's such a shortcut to kind of protecting a child. Um, how, is, how exactly is that enforced in America? Are they like doing special contracts for children's phones or something where parents there, provide proof? There are a couple of things that happen in the States. So, for example, in with Snapchat, for example, um, up to now, it has been 13, I think, has been at the age. And mm. if you are under 13, you're still allowed to use a version of Snapchat, which is called Snap Kids. And I didn't know they made that. Yeah, yeah. And there's a YouTube one as well, isn't there, for kids? Um, I Facebook keeps trying is. to launch a kids thing. I don't mm. know how much traction it's gaining. There was one about six months ago, I think, that mm. they relaunched and it had some sort of trendy name. And Yeah, I think the fa in the Facebook's case, you, you, the kids version, you have to um, have a parent add friends uh, for you. That makes sense. It, it does make sense, absolutely. I think, as far as I'm open to correction here, but I think with the Snap Kids version, I don't think you can add. It's much more, it's much stricter in terms of uh, adding friends. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but the like the bottom line here is that it seems that like some of the TDs in our parliament believe in you know, uploading like a, a passport or something de details to, to show it for an age verification. There, there was an actual a proposal on yeah, the floor of the doll um, not not too long ago. It was the Minister of State as well. It wasn't. It wasn't, wasn't Minister of State. Opposition. Yes, that's right. Um, so that kind of shows some of the mentality. Now, I spoke to one of the TDs this week on the, on this, Sean Sherlock uh, from Labour, and he was one who voted in favour of this to, to be 16. It was Labour and Fianna Fáil who actually... Um, supported this. I was, I was slightly surprised that Labour had uh, that Labour went that way. He said to me that it was it was a balance between freedom of access to information and um, uh, kids being tracked commercially. I, I could sort of see the logic, but on balance, it just it still seems to be a regressive step. The last point is that one of the, uh, the one of the other. Um, organization spunout.ie they made an interesting point in uh, about LGBTI children uh, who it, Ian Power uh, was making the point that kids typically find uh, realize they're gay at around 11 or 12 but they don't actually come out to their friends and family until they're 15 or 16 so that creates an issue now for kids who may want to you know to to to, to use services, social media service, not just spun out or, um, you know, counselling service, but peer conversation services themselves without their parental, without their parents actually looking over their shoulder. 
Um, however, um, it may not have much. <coughs> what's going to happen is just kids are just going to keep using the same service. Yeah, I don't understand why they can even pursue this argument. It doesn't seem enforceable. The 16 age limit just seems purely for corporates to cover themselves because well, that, you can that's ascribe more be, autonomy yeah, to a 16-year-old. It's, yeah. it's going to be the overall effect. And the irony is the people who are most in favor of that 16 uh, limit are would on paper be the the same ones who believe that who want to take technology more out of our lives and particularly out of out of kids lives um, so anyway i don't know how that's that one's going to uh, turn out um they did say they're going to review it one year after it between one and three years mm. after but now again our government or our parliament doesn't have the greatest um uh, track record in reviewing legislation. We're still waiting for the review for the Defamation Act from 2009, which yeah. I think was supposed to be what, five years ago now. Yeah, and also, like, politically, how easy is it to change the digital age of consent from 16 to 13? Even if majority of people think it's sensible, the ones who don't will kick up a stink. And in Ireland, that the way politics works is if there's a if there's a rump who really cares about something. Uh, it's very hard to... Well, it to, depends. To There's 158 people currently that, you know, you just need to be on the right side of 158, mm. whatever that is, whatever, what's half of that? I should be able to drum that up 60 yeah, or something. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, another couple of things that uh, happened recently are Twitter are starting to hide responses uh, for people who they deem as to be trolls. Um, last week, they brought in uh, a new set of guidelines to basically uh, conceal behind... Uh, badges which say things like show more replies if they get signals that uh, a Twitter account is being, you know, disruptive or is preventing uh, open conversation on Twitter. Um, one of the interesting things about this is how it has divided opinion on Twitter. There's all sorts of culture wars that are going on uh, at any one time. But Right-wingers on Twitter have taken this as, as a direct affront because they believe, well, cause they tend to be more troll, trolly than, than, than the other side, but they believe that it's just an attempt to actually cut them out of conversations. Uh, and But Twitter says, no, this is just about trying to stop the amount of abuse that is meted out on Twitter and also the amount of uh, uh, accounts that are reported um, for abuse. I don't really know how, what to think of it, whether to think of it as sort of slightly sense censorship or sensible, given that, you know, it, it's actually really hard to have an open discussion on Twitter at the moment. To me, it's like the mildest form of shadow ban. Mm. Like, it's not that bad. Yeah. Um, I had to interview a load of alt-right people back in 2016, and most of them were used to just having to, like, periodically delete or be removed from Twitter and come back under new names. I mm. mean, like, if they're going to pursue being a racist asshole on the internet as like their full-time career slash pursuit, their hobby, they're going to have to make peace with the fact that like mm. it's a corporate platform that doesn't, you know, it, it's it's in their interests to be palatable to the public. I mean, mm. that said, I'm sure there are lots of relatively mild things that just happen to include curse words or something and yeah. they get relegated to the more replies. But it's not, it's nothing that terrible, I, mm. you know, and it's, it's almost like saying that it's censorship to ask people to have the interest to click the more replies. Mm. If I'm following a thread and I'm genuinely interested, I probably will read the more replies because it's funny. It's literally segmented out the extreme replies. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, often that that little bad show more applies. Ooh, now we're going you get to that the vague stuff. lurchy feeling as though yeah. you're going into a, a a comment section on the journal or something. Oh, <laughs> you're like, yeah. I'm going to see some extreme stuff here. Mm-hmm. I might not agree with any of it, but I'm intrigued to see what has been said. So. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. It's not censorship. It's certainly not censorship. It's certainly not censorship if they put it in a slightly off-center yeah. place. So I think yeah. that that's yeah. the interesting thing about it. And I think Twitter does have a... It certainly has a problem in terms of a lot of trolling, a lot of negativity, and some very nasty things can be said. Mm. Twitter can be a bit of a cesspit at sometimes. But at the same time, you don't necessarily want to be... You know, if people really don't want to expose themselves to that sort of thing, just delete your account. They're, the only way to actually <laughs> completely avoid it is to not be there. One thing that stands to be abused, I suspect, is that um, if you have... One of the criteria that can put you in the more replies is if you've been blocked a few times. And I do see that get abused a lot. Um, I see that get abused on YouTube, where if you get a strike mm. against your account, that could be the end of your career if you get so many strikes, you know, and... And I suppose as a journalist, I should care more about Twitter that if someone were to just suddenly block me for the lols, I'm mm. not sure if I'd have much of a case, would I? You know, and, and then suddenly everything I said would be just invisible to yeah. a lot of people. But it's already happening in so many ways. And most media outlets are facing that on Facebook right now. And on Twitter, if you don't, if you're not loyal to Twitter, uh, which personally, like, I've been kind of staying away from Twitter because of all this referendum stuff is just sort of wrecking my head and I've wanted a break from it. So for my own sanity, I've been taking a break. But consequently, I suspect I get a far lower uh, readership of my tweets because I don't put in the time on Twitter anymore. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it it does sort of punish you for not um, playing by its rules. I I find it really, really hard to have... um, uh, a calm, intelligent discussion about something on Twitter. I really do. Um, yeah. I, that used not to be the case at all. That's that's the sort of contradiction that I think comes from Twitter. I think it's in Twitter's interests that we continue to hold extreme opinions and express them on Twitter because that's what generates more debate and that's what makes more money for Twitter. Mm. But then if you go too much into one area, you risk falling foul of Twitter. Uh, that makes me sound like some edgelord or something um i'm not yeah i'm not defending not defending the alt-right but it's this impossible balancing act and personally i'm not sure i am emotionally stable enough to handle twitter anymore i hate it doesn't it really just come down to how much you can actually stomach uh getting into the trench and and arguing and debating because if you can if you're robust if you like it if it's recreational for you you know, you'll jump right in there and you don't you don't really care. Um, you don't really care if it gets ugly or messy. It's kind of all a bit of sport. Um, I'd love that to a, see... Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say, is that, is that why other people are on Twitter, to have these kind of yes. foul-mouthed, ultra-crepidarian people giving out and holding forth? Like, Twitter has been trying to rebrand itself as a news mm-hmm. outlet for some time. It's changed. It's no mm-hmm. longer a social media mm-hmm. uh, on any of the app stores. It's mm-hmm. now news. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's trying to do partnerships with, uh, like, sporting organizations. And it's got TikTok, its thing with Bloomberg that it's doing. And it's really trying to move away from, or, or probably trying to marry like traditional news and opinion and be somewhere that you go to find out exactly what's happening and get uh, immediate feedback. Mm. And I think if that's what it's going towards, uh, there's a place for kind of trolling and right wing opinion if you can pitch it as, you know, this is somebody expressing their 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 viewpoint. 
But in other ways, there isn't. You wouldn't get that on a news channel. You wouldn't open the paper and get that. You wouldn't go to a website and get that. You wouldn't tune yes, in to the news. Yes, but aren't we the conservative, you know, gatekeepers of the established media? And we just want to keep the main pe the, the, the the people crazies. down. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, there's, yeah. there's there's an there's an entire news outlet of the future that's just opinions, and maybe that's just what the internet is at this stage. I think that's really funny in contrast to say how Facebook defends itself and defines itself, saying you know we're not a media organization. We merely want to bring people together and connect the world, and they have this extremely rose-tinted, harmonious view of humanity on Facebook. But Twitter, I, f I suspect, can't fully go down that route and just be completely tone deaf because they know that they are so popular with media and that they exist both as breaking news, as a platform for breaking news, but also as this kind of meta layer of commentary uh, from, you know, and essentially a really important sort of lifeblood of media, but, but also the sort of uncertain undefined shape of the future of media. Um, and they're, I, I'm interested that they're actually willing to admit to being a media company even, because mm -hmm. uh, I guess that's an improvement on what Facebook do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of media companies, uh, Facebook had its own uh, issues there. Uh, over the week, it took down 21 million pieces of adult nudity or pornography in the first three months of this year and applied warning labels to 3.5 million pieces of, of violent content during the same period, according to the company. I think it also uh, said that it disabled 583 million fake accounts and says that between 3 and 4% of all active accounts uh, during that period, but also on a rolling basis, um, are actually fake. Um, this didn't get quite as much uh, attention as I thought it might. Um, maybe we're just used to uh, thinking of Facebook as somewhere where there's going to be a lot of crap you know, around the edges. Um, I thought people would jump on this uh, quite a bit more, specifically because the company didn't really say that it was really necessarily getting any better. They were they were presenting they were presenting uh, themselves as a universal utility platform, and humans are going to human. That's that's that was kind of more or less the way they were presenting it. And we're kind of we're making some progress in some areas, but you know. Um, we're not in other areas. Now, maybe the company should be given credit, though, just for being a little bit transparent about it and giving us some of the figures they never have before. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I think Facebook have got an almighty kick in the backside over the last year. And they're now, it, like every single week, they seem to want to tell us about, you know, what they're doing or, or how things have changed. I thought the stuff around the eighth, uh, the ads around the eighth ref, uh, uh, amendment was very interesting. I thought the difference between them and Google uh, the different approach uh, that they took uh, was extremely interesting uh, for people who haven't fully picked up on the difference. Facebook will allow ads from both sides as long as they're sourced within Ireland or paid for within Ireland, whereas Google has chopped all ads. Um, you know what's really weird? Um, this is going to sound purely like just... Um what's the phrase? Uh, a story. But I was on YouTube yesterday and I got an ad. Okay. Yeah, it was for the referendum. It was trying to make me vote no. Well, you definitely shouldn't have seen that. Yeah. I was kind of surprised. Um, yeah, I think I, I've seen isolated incidents of of the same thing of ads yeah. cropping up on um, on YouTube and others. I mean, interestingly, I was writing about this and I rang up the Irish Times, uh, our own ad directors in here in I and M, and RTE, and the both the Irish Times and I and M will accept ads digitally. Uh, 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 on the eighth referendum, so it's kind of an interesting contrast that that the mainstream media essentially will still take 
uh, ads on this, like Facebook. But I just thought Google's move was kind of peculiar. And yeah, it some seemed panicked, didn't it? It seemed a bit panicked. It yeah. seems like we're the testing ground for something that they haven't quite worked out and mm. they're just scared, so they're kind of hedging their bets. I think you've just described Facebook and Google. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that there's a, there's a difference, though. If you're talking about advertising to people on Facebook where you're targeting people based on their interests, uh, on the profile that they've built, th that's something that actually can be very useful politically. And it's no surprise that they will continue to make money off that. Mm. And I think it's quite responsible of them to say, look, we're just sourcing these ads. Um, from Ireland, uh, everyone with our, within the country, mm. regardless of whether we agree with their viewpoint or not, has the right to, to put that point across. Um, with Google, if its main ad kind of solution is about search, you, it is kind of it's a slightly different premise in terms of how you would then discover ads. If you're lo online looking for information about the eighth, it's mm. a lot easier for someone to serve ropey looking misinformation. Yeah. Or, and yeah. we saw that report yesterday mm. that looks like a government report. <laughs> So actually, I think I think Google, I think the fact that, that I, I'm not so surprised that there's a different approach between the two of them. And I think yeah. the different approach suits the different networks that, as they are. Mm. It's true. One is one is more directly implicated in, in kind of morals, the morals of providing information. And it's so funny how actually the law that this is all around is is also about providing information that you mm. can be locked up for providing information. Like so, yeah, I, I, I mean, mean, it's I fascinating. Mean, but just to me, it was interesting that Google waited so late to do that, though. Yeah. Uh, now, I mean, I there was some commentary. Uh, Pat Leahy in the Irish Times political editor um, essentially wrote a long analysis piece suggesting that Google were uh, panicked and were afraid that if the referendum is defeated, that it would be partially implicated because of the caliber of some of the ads that were being served uh, through its platform. Um, I'm just wondering, is that, I mean, is all the crap that Facebook took over Cambridge Analytica and Trump and Brexit, is, is, is was that the reason that, that Google actually brought the hammer down? I'd say Google is looking at Facebook going, oh my God, I hope we don't get the kicking yeah. those guys get ever because Facebook took an awful lot of flack, potentially mm -hmm. unfairly compared to what everyone else was doing. They mm -hmm. just seem to be the poster boys who got it in the neck mm -hmm. and are continuing to do so to a certain degree. And it's the, the interesting thing about Facebook is its share price is back to where it was before it came. Oh, yeah. That, that like, was always it's bulletproof. Happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg is two fingers up to the to the uh, UK House of Commons where well, I'm not going there. He, I think he will appear before the, the Brussels, European Parliament, yeah. though. Yeah. Mm. Um, is there any other country where Google have done similar um, in an emergency situation or are we the first? I'm not aware that they have in during a major political event that they yeah. have blank changed their advertising policy with two weeks to go uh, to the poll date. I'm not aware that, that they've done that, but maybe we're in special circumstances with the whole Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. Yeah, um, I'd love to know how much money Facebook and Google booked from online ads for yes and no side before they decided how much money are they issuing to do the right thing? Because in some ways, if you want to be really cynical, you'd say good PR. You know, they're doing the right thing here. Mm. Um, but how much money are they? Well, the conventional giving? wisdom is that the no campaign, we're spending much more digitally than the yes campaign. I think pretty much everyone accepts that. So in theory, Google were giving up a little bit more money by, you know, bringing the hammer down on advertising. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, in terms of the hassle that they wouldn't, they may, they may have uh, suffered if, if there is a no result which I didn't think there was a hope in hell of a no uh, three weeks ago. And I still think it's going to pass, but it's, I think it's getting a lot tighter now. Um, uh, but, 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 but what else we got? Airbnb. 
Amsterdam, the Dutch want to kick Airbnb out of Amsterdam. So apparently uh, Airbnb has been banned, provisionally banned in Amsterdam because they're just completely pissed off with um, the city turning into quote unquote um, a museum. And we had a, we ran a, had an episode a couple of months ago here uh, where we debated this in terms of Dublin and whether Airbnb was a good or a bad thing. We had a guy on who rents his place out um, uh, to, uh, to, uh, through Airbnb and he was making the point, look, it's, if, if it, Airbnb wasn't here, I, you know, we, it's not like I would be, that this would be available to a young couple or anything for, you know, for housing. So he was making the point that it was kind of benign. I know tourism bosses say they say it's good, but they have their own um, a reason. And then, but on the other hand, people say, look, this is just ridiculous. It's taking up too much of the, the city's housing stock. Um, I don't really know what to think about it. It's I mean, a hard. I mean, do we know how much it was? I, how much it was taking up? I mean, for for touristy destinations like Amsterdam, it does seem like a good thing, provided uh, people from Amsterdam are still able to live and work in their own city. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Amsterdam only once, and I got the real sense that it was very much a segmented city into its tourist districts and its residential districts, and that it, this struck me as kind of too late, that they were in the same kind of uh, wave they were going after. <laughs> Beer bikes. I'd never heard of a mm. beer bike, but that's a thing. And a uh, boat, beer boat tours. Easy boat, easy boat trips. <laughs> it, it seems to me that they're just suddenly experiencing this kind of cathartic moment of, mm. of self-disgust and that they just want to get rid of There's other places where it makes more sense to me, like... Mm. Uh, you know, you kind of, it makes sense in the context of somewhere like Barcelona where, you know. Yeah, apparently Barcelona and Venice have, uh, have essentially gone down this path somewhat as well. In, in Amsterdam, a coalition of four parties negotiating to form the new city government. I'm reading this from The Independent today. Yesterday issued a pledge of agreed reforms to provide balance in the city. It will ban Airbnb short-term rentals in busy areas, divert cruise ships from docking in the centre and crack down on quote-unquote fun rides like segways, beer bikes, and boozy boat trips. Uh, we have to ensure the city stays livable for all residents, said and, Yvette yeah, Hoffman. Under the new laws, if you see someone on the segway, you're entitled to push them into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Amsterdam is a very livable city, though. I mean, yeah, it's more it bikes than people. I, I think it does have, like, you can wander really around the main nice area and be in one of those residential areas, and it's gorgeous, and it's lived mm. in. It's not like... It doesn't have the same kind of spread. I'm sure it has spread, but it, it, in the city centre, there are still as like life and activity in a way that we don't have here in Dublin. That's it's mm. a very fair point. We kind of gave up on that as a model probably 40 or 50 years ago, and um, we we still we're still struggling with it. Uh, there's still areas of the city that are kind of known. Um, in fact, I was tweeting recently about the amount of derelict houses within one kilometre here. Probably, mm. it's the second biggest. Georgian mansion built in Dublin. It's called Aldborough House. It's it's there beside the Five Lamps, which is probably 800 yards from where we're sitting right now. Has been pretty much derelict for 20 years, 25 years. And people have been stripping the lead and bits yeah. and pieces yeah. out of it. It's ever very, since. It's kind of, you should, you should, I think you should use it or lose it. Um, a couple of other things uh, before we uh, leave. Banks have been trawling through our social media. My colleague Charlie Weston had an interesting story about AIB which was requiring all mortgage applicants to uh, tick a box which said that AAB could trawl through your Facebook and your Twitter and your LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff. Um, they've since withdrawn. They've since withdrawn that because we got a front page story out of it and you know they, they, some, a lot of people were given out about it. Um, 
I kind of thought that they were just sort of being ruthlessly honest because I think they're going to do it anyway. I think if mm. you apply for a mortgage, I think they're going to trawl through to see, you know, how many bedding slips or whether you've been on a, you know, taking baths and champagne or been to Vegas. It's know. so funny though, it really instantly brings to mind things like um, every few months you read a story about like some rapper who got arrested or mm. something. Someone who like, you know, their Instagram identity <laughs> yeah. is that they're rolling in money and like yeah. bags of drugs and guns. And then you have to like imagine that behind the scenes, this guy is like gathering up all of his guns mm. and like and his, his stacks of money to appear like the Instagram person. Just like say, you know, a, a YouTuber will only take pictures when they happen to be on their private jet or, you know, like everyone's creating this fictional this fictional fake reality. I remember it was at ODB, the guy who sings Baby I Got Your Money. Yeah. Um, oh, ODB. Yeah. I think he was arrested and done because on his album cover he showed his social welfare yeah, card or something. Yeah, yeah, famously. He was collecting from and, and he was making, he was And he would pick it up in a limo as well. Mm. <laughs> what a legend. Um, but like, you know, and then on it, kind of how that, how that filters down to everyday pedestrian uh, lesser members of the Wu-Tang Clan, like mm -hmm. you, God, you know, mm -hmm. he would never do such a thing. No. I think Bobby um, Digital might be right for uh, the best <laughs> But like, our, you know, we're all misrepresenting ourselves a little bit on social media. I can't, I can just imagine some humorless bank manager telling me that like, I seem too edgy or something. I don't know. Do you know, it's a question I do ask that myself from time to time <laughs> on, not so much on Twitter, because that's sort of 60% work, 70% work. But in, I'm using Instagram a lot more in the last year. But all of my photos are kind of, they're all sort of like, you know, a lovely sunset or, you know, like a, here's a heron resting, you know, by the canal. And they're actually nice photos because I'm sort of into photography. But it's, it's really boring. Somebody must look at me and think that guy probably wears like a sleeveless quilted jacket and sort of <laughs> one of those Canon or Nikon sort of straps and probably a beard balding on top with one of those socks and sandals. Yeah. But you're a prime candidate for a mortgage, surely. It's the other stuff that they're looking out for. They actually have a bonus for um, bird spotting club members. I'm sure like they herons. do. Yeah, Sunset. all that. No. Because yep. we had yeah. James Cavan in here last week. I did a, an interview with him just on his perception of media and, you know, what, what, what he thought. And one of the points that resonated with me is that he, and, you know, people say this all the time, just be yourself, you know, just don't worry about it when anyone thinks and be yourself. Can anybody really do that though? I mean, he can yeah. obviously. It's really funny right now. There's this uh, series. I don't know. I, this is me betraying that I watch way too much YouTube, but this, this really famous YouTuber is kind of an OG YouTuber. Shane Dawson has um, done a series with another OG YouTuber called Graveyard Girl. I don't know. No, neither of you know her. <laughs> I've been watching her for like, I think it's probably about seven years and she's really grown up, but she, she began as this kind of token quirky girl. Um, she dresses kind of goth. Um, she's very eccentric. Her interests are really like exaggerated. Her, her manner is really exaggerated and kind of colorful and crazy. And in the beginning, that was her being herself, mm -hmm. but she clearly grew up and got a lot older and also got a lot wealthier and hid the wealth from her viewers and now has this crisis of identity and this other guy's trying to help her through it so she can get her viewer count back up again. Um, but the whole thing is that be being herself actually became the problem because she was stuck being herself at like 18 years old and now mm. she's nearly 30. So yeah. or she is 30. Um, like the whole be yourself thing is in itself a challenge and a sort of set of confines that you can step into. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. Well, Kavanaugh, James Kavanaugh was saying that he reckons he has five years max bec on oh the basis that. Oh my God, that's that. so creepy and morbid. Well, he's so young. We, well, he's 20, 28. Okay. So he's young, but yeah. he's not. 21 no, young, you know, no, and his point is, look, I've no illusions about this. People 
come to my channel and they follow me because they like me and they like what I do, they just may not like me in three or four years time. And, you know, when that happens, I'm yeah. not going to feel too bitter about it. Yeah. You know, that's a very mature assessment oh, of how the world works mature. and what his role is. And obviously yeah. he's a smart guy. And up to a point, that's normal, right? He's because coining it as well. Everyone changes mm. um, and everyone changes their jobs and their work. And, and even if you're like you're creating something or writing or making Snapchat or <laughs> Snapchats mm. and getting money for that or whatever, all the way through your life, you're still going to change. Like the, the medium might not change, but the content will. Mm. It's just it, it so happens that his is in front of the world yeah um so it's more obvious it was a he posted a video a while a couple of weeks ago with uh, nell mccafferty who is the the veteran uh, feminist campaigner and they were both down i think uh in kerry bally bunyan was it there's a uh there was a women's conference down there i can't remember for for, for it was it was media a women in the media conference down there anyway nell was down there i think james cavan was down there as well but they came back off uh, up to Dublin on the train. There's a clip of him and Nell, and there was a couple of teenage girls on the the uh, uh, just beside the train, and they caught a glimpse of James, and they started screaming, and Nell thought it was her, and she like she sort of you know like withdrew and got a, got a terrible old fright. It's kind of new to the new to the new to the Instagram fame game, but um, very a very you, you you said a very mature young man. He said in his photography uh, middle-aged uh, profile way. And um, last thing I will bring up, uh, just because I'm slightly fascinated in a very shallow way, is Elon Musk dating Grimes. Um, so for those who may not know who Grimes is, uh, she is a very popular, uh, very successful uh, musician. She is 30, I think. And Elon Musk is 46, and he is Mr. Tesla and Mr. SpaceX. And the way they got together, apparently, they turned up at this Met Gala Ball, which is this very fancy costume uh, event in New York. And But the way they got together, apparently, was that um, Elon Musk saw that Grimes had made a joke about Rocco's Basilisk this thought experiment. Had either of you heard of Rocco's Basilisk before this? No? Yes. I think I had it tiresomely explained to me. You definitely would have with your, your motherboard. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I don't career. think I understood it because I think I just glazed over when they were telling me. And it, I just kind of took it as yet another evil AI kind yeah. of blah, 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 yeah. blah. But it is quite entertaining when you read about it. And it's lovely to think of Elon Musk and Grimes like having the chats about this. Yeah, it's I don't know if adorable. lovely is the word to use, but it's certainly interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, Rocco's Basilisk, though, it's, it's, a, it's basically a thought experiment, right? It's it's thought experiment. So, and it's about the the risks involved in in developing artificial intelligence. But the premise is that an all powerful artificial intelligence will from the future will look back and judge and punish people humans who didn't help to bring about its existence uh, in in the first place, um, including those who knew about the it, its possible uh, development. So um, it's just kind of slightly fascinating how you know two people can get together on that basis and then what their small talk, you know, is, 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 is based on. Uh, it um, is basically the royal wedding for geeks, though. Yeah. Yeah. They designed the dress. This is why we're talking about it. You I know? think it's kind of beautiful. Yeah. I didn't want to like it. I almost feel like Grimes shouldn't be with him. Um, but she's too good for she's him. She's anti-capitalist, for one thing. <laughs> well, oh, um, yeah, really? She's, yeah, well, she always was. I mean, I, wow. that's, again, like kind of believing Tumblr. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But she was sort of the, the heroine of Tumblr communist mm. teenagers, you know? And mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, although, like, when you think about it, there's probably nothing to actually sustain that, like, why people had that impression of her. Mm. I mean, they're the same people who made Carly Rae Jepsen into Comrade Jepsen, so yeah. it's probably all wishful thinking. I mean, she's just a punk, isn't she? And, you know, yeah. I don't say that in a reductive way. I love Grimes. But, like, um, he's, in his way, a, an oddball. She's she's from space, and he wants to live on Mars. He wants to live on Mars. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing about him is, I read his, his uh, one of his biographies recently, a biography about him, and one of the things he admits is he literally has never grasped how to actually fit in a partner into his life because he's doing so many things and he actually tries to calculate a certain amount of hours because he has a couple of kids with his first wife, he's, Justine. Apparently he has a load of kids. Yeah, he's a few kids this. with his first wife, Justine. And then he married Tallulah Riley, who's also in Westworld. She's one of the stars of Westworld, an English actress. Um, he married or twice, like he married her, they split up, divorced, married her again, they're divorced, they divorced again. Um, and he said that one of the problems was he just couldn't find a way in his Outlook calendar or whatever he uses to actually fit in the, like the hours. To, <laughs> you know what he needs to do? He needs to Google du duplex on the case and that'll make all the phone calls and sort yeah. it out. Do you know, I was just thinking there, like if we accept Google duplex, then like really uh, Roku's Basilisk is sorted, isn't it? Because just by arranging an appointment for your you haircut or whatever. You could be seen as a, a, a positive collaborator. You as long as you're pleasant and your conversation. Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue that in the kind of AI course of the future. Well, what if just, judgment, yeah. you what know? if you just get a tattoo that says like you know AI rules or something? I support you know? AI, yeah. yeah, or like a little badge you could wear yeah. or something like that. Yeah. that should, you Sweatshirt know. with a or write a Roko. medium post. Write a medium and post about it. Nobody will ever see it, but you can point to it. Yeah, and like actually just fill it with as many cliches as you possibly can yeah. about like the greatness of AI. Yeah, <laughs> we have it sorted. We have it completely sorted. Okay, listen, I think we've um, assessed some of the vicissitudes of the, the world at the moment there enough. So at this point, I would like to thank Roisin Kybert, freelance journalist, writes for Motherboard, Vice UK, The Guardian, Irish Independent, many others, and Steve Dempsey, who's the head of product here at Independent News and Media and a columnist in the Sunday Independent. That's it from me, Adrian Weckler, technology editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. If you like this podcast, please give it a like or a comment. That's how other people uh, discover it. But for me, I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.